You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr McPope. A few years ago, I was involved in a climate rally. And I was part of a group, the Australian Religious Response uh, for Climate Change, and carried a banner. And the banner said, Care for Sacred Earth. And it carried the symbols of a number of religions, and also that of of none. There was the word none in a a black circle. And it was kind of, makes me think, what's a secular sacred of a creation? What might that look like? But my immediate concern for this episode, to feed into Christian reflection and action, is how Christians might approach the Bible and answer the question whether or not we can address creation as sacred. And I'm going to turn to the Old Testament and this in another episode shortly, possibly even next week, and look at the book of Genesis in particular, in Genesis chapter 1 this week. There are various ways of understanding God. And for some, God winds up the universe and lets it go. So really, creation isn't sacred at all. It's... uh, it's just totally separate from any realm you might call spiritual, and that's deism. Classical theism, I think, renders God something similar. I, some might jump up and down at that, but a God that's impassable and just doesn't respond the creation to the creation, rather, it seems to me the same kind of thing, that you can't really speak of creation as being sacred. Now, you go all the other way, and a couple of views, you could have a, a pantheistic view and identify the creation with God, and then you have a real problem, I think, with evil. Certainly creation becomes sacred. And you could have a a process kind of God. God's embedded in the unfolding of reality. And insofar as God interacts with the creation, including ourselves, perhaps you can talk about God's indwelling in the creation, therefore having a sacred character. But I can't help but wonder whether or not the view of panentheism, the idea that we indwell God and God interpenetrates all that there is without being identified with it is helpful. Now, none of those models is necessarily affirmed or denied, although I think um, a couple, well, I, I take that back. I think there's a couple that are, we can write off, but it seems to me that the first uh, story in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 1, gives us a story of a God who's very interactive and allows the other to be. Now, that's a theme for another time. There's some more fundamental, <clears throat> excuse me, things that I want to hit on right now. And I think there are two strata or two ideas in Genesis chapter 1. Specifically, I take the view of 1, 1 to 2, 3 as being the one story. Two strata or layers or indeed contributors to the story that give us this picture of a sense of uh, sacred creation. And the first is relates to how the story uses ancient Near Eastern context. 
ancient Near Eastern culture, its motifs, its themes, its ideas, and subverts them. So let me let me go to it then. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and you'll notice that translation, that rendering, I think is consistent with a whole bunch of ideas about the fact that it pre it this isn't creation from nothing. That's not what's being described. It's a category error. And and just to jump in, one of the things that has prompted this program was seeing a discussion on a on a group about John Walton. Now John Walton's an Old Testament scholar, and one of uh, the ideas that he hits on is about ontology, the study of why things are, what they're for. And he thinks that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this is not his words, this is something I read elsewhere, there's no concept of nothing. Uh, I think we still struggle with that today. I mean, who really gets what zero means? And zero took a long time to, to come around. I mean, numbers, whole numbers make a lot of sense, but zero? So for them, nothing is non-functioning a wilderness, a wasteland. And the earth was a, a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. Um, formless void, tohu wabohu. I may have spoken about this before, but the idea that the main goal, the main game of this is agricultural fertility, order and structure. And so this this whole idea that it's creation from nothing is a material ontology, which is a modern engineering-driven um, obsession with how things are built, the process by which they're built, the materials which they're built from. Whereas Walton would say in the ancient Near East, no, it's what are things for? And, and to give you a classic example, you read this in verse 14. Let there be lights in the t- dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. What's the, the lights to do? Separate day from night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And the word seasons is moadim. And it, it it's more like festivals. The idea that there are the set festivals in Hebrew culture, they're agricultural, but they're related to events in Israel's salvation history, to, to use a phrase. So that's what this, the lights in the sky are for. In, in other words, uh, culture is deeply embedded in creation. They're not two separate things. This is not like a scientific account. But one of the key things for, for the purposes of what I'm trying to say in terms of imbuing uh, creation with a with sacredness is this idea um, the face of the deep and in the Hebrew the deep is the tehom now the argument is is the following it is not that the writer of Hebrews took another religious text and sat down to copying it uh, not peering over someone else's shoulder while they're doing a homework or a test or something like that um, but to develop an account that made counterclaims and so the story that the writer is aping is that of Marduk. And Marduk was a storm god off the top of my head. And he is built a temple by the other gods. You can, see where, you can automatically see when I say this, this is where it's driving. But what does he have to do first before the other gods build him a temple? He's to conquer the force of chaos, Tiamat the dragon, the personification of salt water. And you know, in the ancient Near East, where a few people swam and you plied trade on the the oceans, and so if your ship ran aground, you died, that the seas represented chaos. The seas represented disorder. 
And so what you see in, in Genesis chapter 1 is the conquering of that disorder, or it's rather the limiting and the controlling of the chaos to produce order. So what do you see? You see three days of uh, light being separated from dark so that days could be marked out. So you've got that regular repetition, that structure in the account of um, evening and morning, the first day, the second day, etc., etc., etc. A dome in the midst of the waters to separate the waters above from the waters below, ancient Near Eastern cosmology, and then separating the waters uh, from the land to produce the dry land. And lo and behold, on the dry land is an extended discussion of trees and vegetation and all kinds of fruit-bearing plants for both people and animals to eat. And then on day four, you've got the lights in the skies, I noted before, and then you get living creatures in the seas and um, in the air, and then the sixth day, um, you get human beings, as well as wild animals of the earth and cattle and, and creeping creatures. Now, it's, it's a definite note that although people will say that this whole combat account is muted in the account the writer goes out to point that on um day four day five sorry that god creates the great sea monsters and in the story of um Tiamat, Tiamat has i think it's seven or six children i can't remember children and these are it they're explicitly mentioned and if you're telling this story in a, in a context where Babylonians in the past have overrun you and they're a threat and it seems like uh, Israel's God's been defeated to say that all of these things, the sun, moon and stars, the sea monsters in the ocean are all creations of God by, by fiat, by declaration. And yet at the same time, you see great um, interactions. Um, so for example, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind. Uh, and it was so... God made the uh, creatures. So there's a, a call for the the earth to be active in this, to um, to bring forth these things. Let the earth bring forth. And it was so. These things happened. Um, a, a sense, and again, I can go over this another time in more detail, that the creation responds to the divine voice and the divine uh, responds to the creation by seeing and noting that this is good. Hey, this is really great. This is going to plan. Now, some people say that this uh, account is so muted that it's to be denied. But as at least one writer has pointed out, you can't read Genesis 1 without reading, uh, and I, I should note that this is a priestly account from the priestly school, you can't read Genesis 1 without reading the priestly account of the flood either. Because the flood is explicitly the undoing of the good order that leads to agriculture and, and human and animal flourishing by the the floodgates of the Tehom being let loose and the chaos being launched again and the the waters above and the waters below join and the earth swells with water and all these sorts of things are disrupted. And at the end of it all, just as once as Marduk had slain Tiamat and hung up his bow, so you read later in Genesis about the the bow in the sky as being a sign and authors will disagree, but I think it's a sign for both. It's a sign uh, to God to never again do that and to have the regular harvest and, and the regular seasonal cycle and for human beings to remember um, 
that God has relented and what happens if you let violence reign upon the earth. So if all that is, is, is true, you read that God rested on the seventh day and what deities did in their temples was rest. And you read that, oh, and you, can you, you'll forgive me, I can't remember the psalm, but there's a psalm that's a, a psalm of ascents where the pilgrims would go up to Israel to the temple and the temple is, is defined, it's described as God's resting place. Now, the problem, of course, with, with this, oh, and I should say before I go on that what's the last thing that you put in the temple, but the image of the deity and human beings are created in the image of God, uh, male and female, he created them. But the thing is, is that this then says, protologically speaking, that creation is a model um, of a temple. The problem is, is that it doesn't speak directly of God being... Um, what inducted as king, enthroned as king. Um, later on, you find that there's striking similarities between Genesis 2 and Exodus 39 and 40. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And then when you jump to the end of uh, Exodus and the creation of the tabernacle, where we know God is said to dwell in Exodus 39, 30, uh, verse 32, in this way all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. Same language in the Hebrew. Uh, chapter 40, verse 33, he set up the court around the tabernacle and altar and put on the screen at the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. And when you read about the Solomon's temple, there's all these, these elements of creation, um, lampstand representing the tree in the garden perhaps, and there's uh, the, the basin, which is the sea, and all sorts of other bits and pieces to point to the fact, uh, and John Levinson, Jewish scholar who writes on Genesis, says this, that um, the, the temple is creation and microcosm, and creation is a temple and macrocosm. So while Genesis itself doesn't explicitly say, okay, God then sat down and ruled in the creation temple, he did install functionaries, human beings made in the divine image. And then finally, in the biblical account, we see God indwelling in the tabernacle. Then we get the temple. And then, of course, for Christians, you get uh, the book of Revelation and, and other places in the Hebrew Bible, too, that speak eschatologically of God indwelling creation. Because, of course, in the New Jerusalem, there's no temple because God is everywhere. So I think that, and that needs some picking apart and how you nuance it and how you apply it, but that seems to me that Genesis chapter 1 speaks about the creation of holy space. And in the speaking of the creation of holy space, uh, we then understand that creation as it should be um, can reflect divine glory, that we can see the handiwork of God in, in all that we see around us. We can treat it as sacred space. We can certainly think about how is it that we act in a way such that we work towards redeeming the whole of creation. And, and the fact, as I've said before in another episode, that John chapter 1 evokes the language of Genesis 1 to describe the coming of Jesus as a new creation should tell you something that while none of this is to be understood as we might in terms of eco-theology or eco-missiology, that it lays the groundwork. And so there's the difference between the exegesis of the text, which I think establishes that uh, creation is a protological temple, and then uh, 
the temple of Jerusalem then reflects the broad, broadness of creation. And then your hermeneutic, how you apply that to treating God's creation as sacred. That's enough for part one. And part two, we'll talk about another aspect of this first creation account. Well, welcome back. Before the break, we looked at the idea of sacred creation in Genesis chapter 1 and stated that if you compare it to ancient Near Eastern stories of of divine kingship, you expect some kind of coronation. You expect some kind of enthronement when God defeats the forces of chaos. And indeed, this is picked up in the sharing of the language in the priestly tradition between the creation story in Genesis 1 uh, the flood story where we see an end to the conflict and then the enthronement, if you'd like, in Exodus 39 and 40. And of course, what follows from that is the presence of God in dwelling the temple. And I said that means that Genesis 1 is really about the creation of sacred space. And there's a genuine sense in which we can talk about creation as sacred. Now, noted that the thrust, if you like, of the Hebrew Bible to control um, the interaction with the divine insofar as you don't want people building all sorts of higgledy-piggledy um, altars and getting confused about what the faith looks like was centralization. But that was really an antidote in one sense to human peculiarities to idolatry, uh, but also the concentration of the presence of God so that then the uh, nation of Israel would be a blessing to the nations. But you see altars being built all over the place as, as the patriarchs uh, interact with God in various places. So ultimately, while there is this move inwards, there's again a move outwards. And you certainly see that in the New Testament. So it's the creation of sacred space. But I also think there's the creation of sacred time. So if you read Genesis 1, you see that there are eight creation acts in six days. And there's... Uh, if you like, the, there is a symmetry in that because there's two days that correspond where there's two creations uh, or two activities occurring, but it's still a bit odd. And, and also, as we noted earlier, there's the creation of lights on day one and then the lights in the sky on day four. But we've already had day and night being, being, uh, being talked about. And there's this pattern too. Let there be... Uh, and da-da-da-da, so God made, and it was so. But on day one, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Not, and, um, uh, not God saw that it was good, God saw that the light was good. Uh, and there's also, oftentimes too, um, so, for example, the second day, let there be a dome in the midst of the sky and let it separate the waters from the waters. And so it's in one statement, whereas it's not in the first day. Um, it tells you what the light does in later verses. Now, it makes perfect sense if you have 
eight acts of creation and then they put into six days and you put the creation of light first to say we can have the, the to, to establish the the that metrical uh, tone or the, the pattern of the, the days likewise you get in verse 31 God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good and there was evening and morning the sixth day thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of their multitude okay done verse 2 and on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done hang on didn't it just say before uh, and indeed it was very good when God saw that everything he had made on the sixth day because then you get the, the evening and morning the sixth day Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And yet the same word in the Hebrew pops up again uh, in a slightly different form. On the seventh day, God finished the work and he rested on the seventh day. So God blessed the seventh day. Did you get it? And now some people want to say, and there's, there are various um, manuscripts. So there's the, the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament, which has a Hebrew precursor. Uh, and then there's the Masoretic text which is kind of the most accepted Hebrew text. And, and the Masoretic has um, seventh day is in the first instance. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. Uh, whereas the, if I get, if I remember this correctly, I'm scratching my head here, uh, the Septuagint has in the sixth day. And, and, and scholars would maintain now that the Septuagint is a faithful translation of a Hebrew text. So it's not a bad translation of the the um, the Masoretic text or its precursor. And so I think I prefer the more difficult reading, which is often the way to go. And the at the LXX, it's the the Greek text, its precursor in Hebrew was one to make things simpler and move things around. You can see that repeatedly. I won't go into details; I'd have to dig them out. The point is, is that there's a definite kind of hang on, jump from one verse to the other, that verses two and three come back and say, the seventh day is significant. God, then the word God is used a multiple of seven times. There are seven days. Um, I'm just trying to think what else there is. There's, um, and it was so, I think appears seven times. So there's a bunch of phrases that have that, that pattern of seven, and it all builds up to what's said in verses two to three of Genesis chapter 2, and on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested or ceased, the word for which we get Sabbath, on, on the Sabbath, from all the work that he had done, so God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So he blesses the seventh day. Um, I'm just trying to think later on, uh, there's a, a parallel passage, I think it's in Exodus, um, where Moses blesses the people. So there, there, there are parallels here. I'll have to dig that up another time. But the, the, the point is, is that here a day is blessed and it's declared holy. Kadesh is the Hebrew word. It's a word that's uh, obsessively used in what's known as the holiness code in the second half of the book of Leviticus. So God creates a hallowed or, or holy time, and it's the seventh day, the Sabbath. 
Um, but again, it's interesting, just as talking earlier that in Genesis 1, it doesn't say that God is enthroned, it all but implies it. Likewise, there's no commandment here in Genesis 1 to keep the Sabbath. But that's picked up later. In other words, this is uh, what you might call an etiological account for keeping the Sabbath. The creation of sacred space and sacred time. And, and nicely enough, um, well, there's a few things that can be said, but if I go now to Leviticus, Leviticus 19 and verse 30, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. The two are brought together. The two sit on the bedrock of Genesis chapter 1. Here is the creation of sacred space and sacred time. Two of the things that were most significant here in, in Leviticus, and it's repeated again in, um, here we go, kind uh, of bookends it almost, in Leviticus 26. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So to know God by God's covenant name, Yahweh, which is not used in Genesis 1, the general Semitic name Elohim is used, to know that God is to keep the Sabbath and reverence the sanctuary. Sabbath is incredibly important in the, the Holiness Code, uh, Leviticus um, 19 to 26. So, for example, in Leviticus 23, you have the festivals. And the Sabbath, the seven-day patterning, is used to help count things out, to um, help count the days out between the various, um, various festivals. The seven festivals uh, that contain aspects of Israel's salvation history and tied to agricultural festivals. Six days shall be work be done. The seventh day is a Sabbath, a complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord throughout your settlements. And, and on it goes. But wait, there's more. There, there is most definitely more. Where am I? I'll get there. Leviticus 25. So, oh, we've got sacred space and sacred time created in Genesis. And we, we can talk about aspects of Sabbath another time in terms of, is it just about not playing sport and not lighting a fire? No, Sabbath is made for the man, not man for the Sabbath, said Jesus. The human being now, as we would say more, more generally. And certainly when you look at passages in Deuteronomy, certainly when you look at the sabbatical year in Leviticus 25, there's manumission of slaves, there's the return of, of land, property. So it's a great economic reset. It's a great symbol of the how Israel was to aspire to be a holy and just nation. And so people talk now about Sabbath economics, which is related to things like restorative economics, donor economics, etc., etc., where you, you keep the wealth moving. You don't let it accumulate in one spot. And it's shared in an equitable sense. But let's bring this back to the land, uh, the earth. Eretz is the Hebrew used both for the earth in Genesis 1 and the land in Leviticus, referring to the land of Israel most often. And in uh, Leviticus 25, 
Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall prune your uh, so, sorry, sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of a complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. So the land features very prominently in this. And yes, it's agricultural land. Uh, but in other places we were about the fact that wild animals could feed off, off the land, etc. Um, and, you know, it, it sounds like good agricultural practice. Uh, some scholars have, have recognised that a seven-year rest for the land is insufficient, and so obviously fallowing would have had to have gone on throughout, and when it didn't, and when... Um, land was joined to land and the rich boarded up and joined properties together etc and you had a standing army you had to feed in a pre-fertilizer era you eventually drive the land to collapse but if we move a bit further we go from what might sound as a fairly okay with the land gets its own rest and you're speaking in kind of um almost symbolic language to language that's far more compelling i think and it is verses 33 to 35 of chapter 26. So it talks about, and I will scatter among the nations, oh, you I will scatter among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword against you. Your land will be a desolation, and your cities a waste. Tohu Waburhu, from memory, I'm pretty sure. So the, the people get sent into exile, and then he, listen to this. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath years as long as it lies desolate while you are in the land of your enemies and the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath years. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have the rest it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were living on it. So I really think that this sounds a heck of a lot more like um, the land gets to have what it was due and a sense in which human beings could have a Sabbath, but the land not. It, it's interesting too um, that elsewhere in Leviticus, and I should have looked this up beforehand, uh, another episode, it, there's a reference to, um, to covenant between the patriarchs and God, but not between the land and God, but a very clear recognition that God owns the land nonetheless that there's a pre-existing relationship and therefore there is a, a sharing and a covenant relationship in the keeping of the Sabbath and a sense in which the land has a right and a responsibility to do so. And it's pretty consistent in my view that the Hebrew view um, might not be as, as well articulated as in some other faiths about the the animated or conscious nature of creation. But I think maybe if we dig hard enough, we find some surprising stuff. But it really does speak about land having agency, uh, responsibility and rights and judging the people of Israel for not respecting that. In particular, in their, their, their conduct and the lack of holiness. And that leads the land to literally vomiting them out something that I need to return in editing a chapter of my thesis to really emphasize the vomit I was told by one of my supervisors. Emphasize the vomit. Uh, he's a great guy, really. So 
hopefully in just that broad overview of Genesis 1, you see how it underpins so much of the rest of the priestly tradition, in particularly the holiness school, that it's taken for granted that the fact that God can dwell in a temple, can dwell in a tabernacle, goes back to the creation of the world and gives us a sense in which space um, is, uh, the earth is sacred. It's in need of redemption, uh, but the, the journey inward to the temple doesn't then end in the New Testament with a journey further inward to the soul and um you know, despite the fact that it, the Bible, it, the New Testament speaks as much about the spirit indwelling the church as much as the individual, and there's a journey back outwards to re-indwelling the entire creation in Revelation. But also the sense, remember in Hebrews, that we enter a Sabbath rest, um, and that Sabbath is for all of creation, that rest, uh, enjoyment of the blessing of God um, that creation also shares in sacred time. So go forth uh, and experience creation as blessed, as um, as telling forth the glories of God, a place where you can encounter the divine uh, in sacred space and sacred time. Once more, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.